The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to Stage's companion episode to our conversation with entertainment entrepreneur Kevin Jacobson. In part one, we learned of Kevin's early days as a musician, forming and guiding bands that included the KJ Quintet and Cold Joy and the Joy Boys a triumphant career that saw national acclaim for the band and many chart-topping hits. In part two, Kevin takes us on a journey through some of his trials and triumphs as a promoter of artists that include the Bee Gees, Evil Knievel, the Three Tenors, Barbara Streisand and Michael Jackson, and his success as a producer developing the homegrown musical Shout! The Legend of the Wild One, Johnny O'Keefe. It is a fascinating career and a conversation that reveals much of the negotiation, collaboration and frustration that goes into securing and presenting these iconic entertainment experiences. So Kevin, when did you know it was time to sort of leave the Joy Boys and move into uh, representing artists? Oh, representing artists. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Because um, what one career would would finish, yes, I suppose, yeah. your, your life as a musician, and then you became yeah. a um, a manager. Yeah. Um, look, I think it was just automatic. I don't think that was planned in a way because we do cold joy shows, and um, we'd have little Patty on the show. We'd have um, uh, Judy Stone. Um, uh, then we do bandstand. The best thing came, and because um, television, of course, was revolving around this time yes, as well, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I forget how even how we ended up started Bandstand, but it was just a gathering of the artists. It was like a a family affair, and we took ten percent of what they earned. I mean, we thought we were managers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, look, I remember. Um, well, the BGS uh, were part of our family. They um, uh, and we still keep in contact with Barry, who's the only one left. But um, uh, we were playing. Colgio and the Joy Boys were playing um, Surface Paradise, in fact. And uh, Huey Gibb came up to, to us after the show and said, "Could uh, 
could they call, could you and Kevin come and see the boys? They're doing their last show. And now it was 11.30, and the last show's at one o'clock. And uh, I remember saying, uh, what time? And they said, one o'clock. He said, one o'clock? I said, oh, jeez. Colin said, oh, I'll go. And uh, he said, it's the fifth show they've done today. Um, so Colin went to the show. Somebody's birthday party, I think. And I remember being in the wakened by Colin saying, wow, he said, I've just heard a group called the Bee Gees. He said, fantastic. He said, um, harmonies. He said, different. He said, I can't place what it is, but it's different. Anyway, he said, where's my buyer tape? Now we had a big time buyer tape machine, two track. It needed to be like bloody Donathal, do you remember him? Strongest man in the world. Um, to lift it, right? So we couldn't find it amongst the gear. So he made arrangements to meet the next morning at the Church of England Hall at, at uh, Surface Paradise and and um, auditioned the Bee Gees. And the first song was, My name is Barry Gibb, and I wrote this song, and it's, Kiss me once, so yes, but maybe, Kiss me twice, so yes, maybe, Kiss me three times, the three kisses of, then I'd come in, of love, right, the boys would come in. I gave this tape back to him, I was the only one in the world that had this tape, about two or three years back, to Barry. We brought them, I, I brought the tapes down and gave them to um, Noel Brown at Festival Records. I said, listen to this. And Noel Brown said, what about them? I said, listen to harmonies, Noel, that's fantastic. He said, nah, vocal groups don't sell them. And I said, what do you, what do you mean vocal groups don't sell them? I remember say, saying to him, I said, a paper, I said, more than this. I said, a paper comb would sell if it's got the right sound, the right melody. The right. I said, you can't just say paper, nah, not interested. So I had told them, look, we'll bring you down, you can stay at our house at East Stills, <laughs> City of a Million Life, like little old bloody three-bedroom place, cottage. And um, and uh, I said, we'll go to festival, do the record. Well, festival refused, he refused them. So um, I kept badgering that uh, they didn't know what they were doing. I mean, you know, I get a bit cheeky, I suppose. I did. And we'd had number one records and so on. And look, I still say to this day, we didn't get paid proper royalties. I mean, in those days, well, what did we know? We got a royalty sheet we thought was fantastic. You know, we got $4.25, £4.50 or something. <coughs> Sold a thousand records. <laughs> um, anyway, so, um, thousands, I should say. Anyway, so my father built a, what we might call an extended granny flat on our land uh, with some bunks, bed, good bunk beds, good beds. And it was we extended it for a rehearsal room where we used to play. Fortunately, we were our neighbours were our cousins and and uncles and aunties, because we used to rehearse all hours of the night, all through the night, no complaints. Nowadays, you've got to find a place to rehearse, and you know, soundproof. They're soundproof. Anyway, so um, 
we brought them down. They stayed at our house for about, um, oh, I'd say, 18 months um, with the mum and dad, with Huey and Barbara. And um, I phoned Lee Gordon. I said, we've got to put these guys on on um, this group on um, the big show. Alan Hefner said, oh, OK, Kevin, if you say so, we'll put them on, blah, blah. So I said to Barry, I remember saying, Barry, I've got you on the big show with Lee Gordon. I said, so you'll be playing like to 100,000 people. Oh, no, we can't do that. We're not. Barry said, here he is playing to 50,000 now at a time. 68,000 when I did him at the showground at the Olympic Stadium. And um, um, he, um, I remember him saying, oh, oh no, we can, that's, that'll be frightening, you know. I said, Sydney Stadium... He said, what is that, how many? And I said, I don't know, I think it's about 15, 18,000. Oh, no. And I remember saying, Barry, just sing to the first six rows. Pretend it's just a little club you're sitting at. It's just the same. I said, the sound people will do this. Anyway, that was our beginning of our relationship. And then um, a festival wouldn't record them. And um, we found a butcher shop at Hurstville, turned into a studio. And what was his name? No, I should never forget it. Barry, this song, Specs and Specs. So, um, little old upright piano, and you might hear, if you listen to it closely with your ear, you could hear the the dunk, 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 not quite, because the whole bloody piano's out of tune, really. <laughs> and and, um, and um, no, Morris had to, Morris, because they can sing any key, any time, any, anyway, automatically. Fantastic, right? Doesn't matter what, what it is. They just come in automatic. It's unbelievable, right? So compared to groups who work them out, you you sing first, you sing third, you sing fifth, or whatever it might be, they just sing, bang. Uh, so that's specs and specs. Um, now I only knew of a guy called uh, Robert Stigwood, uh, Australian guy from Adelaide. And he was big time in the music business. So I sent him a telex. said, I had a band called the Bee Gees that I'd like him to have a listen to. And they've got a, a, a re-hit coming up. We didn't know at the time. Called Specs and Specs. Arranged for the big on a P&O line. Sing on the way over for the fairs and that. Avery went. By the time they got there, Specs and Specs was number one. <laughs> Good one. Wow. And that was it. And, and that was the beginning of the Bee Gees, yeah. internationally. Yes, yeah. with Robert. And then, uh, years later, Barry said, um, you know, our little brother Andy, uh, he said he's accustomed to um, uh, being backstage only, limousines, um, special flights, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, he wants to, he's, he, he's a good singer and we think uh, uh, he wants to be in the business, but... He said, we'd like you to straighten him out like you did us. And I said, what do you mean like I did you? He said, you know, send us on those long trips and playing RSL clubs and all that stuff. And I said, oh, was that hard? He said, well, you did it. We did do 19 shows one day at the Sydney, uh, the Sydney showground, the Royal Easter show. <laughs> 19 shows! <laughs> so out comes Andy. Uh, how old was he, Billy? 16? Yeah, about 16. We had our studio at Glebe. He, um, he um, gave him his accommodation. Beautiful looking boy. 
Sangwell used to write. Yeah. Beautiful looking. Yeah. Great hair. Take him on a tour. You're driving to uh, where was he driving? And he said, "Oh no, I can't drive." I said, "Yeah, you got to drive." I said, "Everyone drives. You drive up to two hours." I oh, know I don't. Yes, you do. I remember getting to the club and saying, oh, "Do we have a guitar tuner?" I said, "No, Andy. You're, you're the guitar tuner. It's your guitar." Uh, and I said, "Don't leave your guitar behind. Watch it at all times, like they do in the army with your rifle, and tune your own guitar." So he was pissed off. He wrote them. He's tell Barry, "Oh, Kevin, you know, Kevin." You were straightening them out. <laughs> so uh, that's another story. The Andy Gibbs story. Another one altogether. Where he, we ended up with his wedding and his wife and his marriage and his twenty-first birthday and and so on. And a lot of it, I'm, I must write to Barry because a lot of it they've missed out on because they were too busy in their own career. Yeah. And then, of course, there was the breakup with Stinkwood. And the old man uh, and uh, Huey Gibb asked me to go over and settle it because uh, no one wanted to know me. So I flew to England and um, uh, the only one that... Uh, I went to Morris and at the time he was an alcoholic. He straightened himself out quickly and was fantastic. Married to Lulu at the time. Um, Barry was at his own studio and uh, and Robin didn't want to know. She, Robin said, I know why you're here. I'm not interested, blah, blah, blah. So I said, the easiest. So I had to come back, you know. Failed, failed little jo job. So, um, uh, yes, yeah, so that's our association with the boys, the BGs, and uh, we gave Barry. Uh, I've still, uh, we had some publishing rights of uh, Andy, and because um, Andy, we just gave free uh, time, of course, to the studio we had in the little studio where he wrote quite a few songs. Um, and then uh, we dealt with an agent um, to put him into Pirates and Penzance in uh, Los Angeles. And I uh, went over there with the opening night and he was on with Glo uh, 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 Victoria Principal, who wouldn't let me or his mother into the backstage, cause a furor. Uh, that's another story. So um, uh, You're going to write a book, aren't you, Kevin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I only think of it while I'm talking about it. I never talk about it, hardly, you know. The 70s and 80s saw you uh, having great success, touring many, many artists yeah. um, throughout Australia, bringing them to our shores. Some of them didn't go quite so well. Tell me about Evil Knievel. Well, I was in Los Angeles. Um, I forget what artist I was doing. I think it was Peter Allen. And I got a call from, uh, uh, from Michael, actually, Wayne Stevens. He said, look, um, we've come up with a format outdoor, of an outdoor spectacular. He said, with worldwide, like circus performers, outdoors. He said, we'd like to call it the Evil Knievel Thrill Spectacular, but we can't find Evil Knievel. He said, we've had all agents, we've had... He said, we've really done research, we can't find him. Now, the guy that represented me at that time was a guy called Cal Ross, who had this deep radio voice and I was a bit sus of his connections but he also managed the old timers of that I call them old timers then Zaza Gabor um, Sammy Davis and so on he, anyway I said do you know we were, I said I just got a call from Michael Leslie's office they're trying to find Evil Knievel I said do you know where he is he said 
I'll find out. He calls me in my hotel and said, yep. He said, we'll go and see him tomorrow morning. I said, okay, I'll pick you up, send a car, pick me up. He's with me and Bruce Flatman, who we know today. And I said, where are we going? And they said, to the Slammer. I said, oh. I thought it was a bloody coffee lounge, right? Or a club. Or a club. <laughs> so we pull up in the Los Angeles County Jail. And he goes in advance and tells the guy what we need to interview Evil. Now Evil was in there, I think it was six months, I'm not sure, for breaking the forearm of his manager guilty and in jail, in jail, and we rock up to jail. And the warden said, oh yes, we like to think that some of our, um, not inmates, whatever they are, um, uh, have somewhere to go after jail. He said, I'm sure it would be good for Mr Knievel to be able to participate in the tour of Australia. So out comes Evil with prison calm on, he goes and gets him. Evil goes and sits in the warden's office. And so I rock up with the warden and I tell him what it's about, having the information from from Ashley's. It's thrill spectacular, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and you do your bike thing and so on. And he said, he said, okay. Uh, he said, you've, you've got me. He said, I said, well, I, I want a contract, something. I said, you're allowed to sign contracts in court. He said, no, I'll see you in... Um, I think it might have been Georgia, where was it? Anyway, turns out Evil's a famous, is a great golfer, off six or five or whatever. <clears throat> and I went to that um, hotel. That's all I ever, come back to Australia. A week later or two weeks later, when he gets out of jail, I go to this hotel, um, which, where I had to hide a limo, at the airport, went to the hotel. I think it was over the east side, so it was over, might have been the uh, uh, state of Georgia. No, it was north. Uh, anyway, um, go to the hotel, decide I'll go to bed because it's six o'clock in the morning, have a sleep because I come straight through, banging on the door, evil can evil, been golfing. Um, or going golfing or whatever, or meet me downstairs at eight o'clock in the office, draw up the contract, we draw up the contract, I read the contract, I sign the contract, he signs the contract, it was drawn up by some staff member, like the secretary. So I'm on the way back to the airport, having signed him up, and on the freeway and pulling up on the right hand side, there's evil Knievel in the German, but they, but I did never heard of a studs, STU, DZ, I think, car, which apparently is a handmade gold car with gold bloody, right? And uh, I'm sitting on the right hand side of the limo, and I've weighed down the wheel, he's driving, and he said, I'm not signing that contract, I'm not going to Australia. I said, okay. And I pick up the con <laughs> contract and I just, it in half and he said you're a fucking lunatic 
And off I went to the airport. When I got to the airport, he was there. And he apologised. This was the beginning of a nightmare. So I go back to the hotel, draw up the same contract and sign it, and away we go. So now, Ashley sets up all the stuff. I didn't have anything to do with producing it. And uh, um, I've got to go back uh, to do ads because he refused to go into the studio to do an ad or be shot. And I said to him, I called him, and I said, why don't we do it outside of the hotel where we, you know, where the fountains are in Las Vegas, where he jumped over the bloody fountains. So I got a film crew, freezing cold, cold, like, I don't know, 20 degrees below in that harsh... In the middle of the desert. Desert yeah. time. Yeah. And he has got his fox fur on and so on. Yeah, yeah mink coat, full length mink or whatever. Full length mink. So, couldn't do it because uh, it was too cold or whatever. Now I'm staying at, um, not the Hilton, wherever I was staying, I don't know. He asked me that night to go to the Hilton Hotel, play blackjack. I said, I know nothing about blackjack. I don't play anything. Gamble. I've never been interested. Now you've got to come with me. So I go to him. I meet him, but there, there's a special table set aside for him at the Hilton Hotel. And he said to me, "I need twelve grand. Can you give me twelve grand?" I said, "I can't give you twelve grand." And he said, "Well, um, I'll sign a contract that's advance." royalties for my merchandise. I got 12 grand. I couldn't work it out, you know. So I said, look, I'll give you 10 grand. Because I have to get back to Wesley and say, if we give me 10 grand advance for his merchandise. So I gave him 10 grand. And that lasted, I would say, five minutes. Oh, dear. Now, I know everyone would know how to play Jack Blackjack, but it's up to 20, isn't it, or 25? 21, isn't it? 21, sorry. So he'd have 19 and call for another card. And I said, that's a bit ridiculous. You know, and of course they blew, blew out all the, all the time. He blew it out. So then he said to me, stay there or come with me. He said, I know where to get some money. So I go with him and he goes down to the old Las Vegas and I go with him and he meets some guy whoever it is, the manager, go down underneath the bowels of the earth and in there and there's a big piles of cash and he takes 10 grand, another 10 grand cash from this guy, back we go again. That's gone in about the next 20 minutes. And within that time, he said, oh, look at this, Kev. Well, he said, I'll put $100. Oh, the guy that's picking up cigarette butts off the floor, cleaning, um, he said, um, you watch this one, he drops a hundred dollars. The guy comes over and looks around, picks it up, puts it in his pocket. Evil thought that was fantastic. And then he'd go to the toilet and the guy would come in after the toilet to clean up and he'd drop a hundred dollars and stand off and watch the guy pick up the hundred dollars, look around to see if anyone's looking and put it in his pocket. I thought, this guy's really a bloody strange guy, right? So, and that was all the beginning. I. We went outside, they had the script written. Um, 
like a, hi, my name's Evil Can Evil. Um, I'm heading a thrill spectacular of Australia, blah, blah, blah. Well, the greatest thing, because I had, <coughs> they had, not me, um, uh, from Eastern Europe at the time, uh, <coughs> some pole swingers, pole performers, swinging <coughs> pole, that were huge, like in the, in the air, swung backwards and forwards across each other, and they'd, they'd jump from one to the other, you know, like 20 metres in the air, you know, and so on. And they had the Los Angeles a a a motorbike angels, which were twenty female bike riders that did tricks, and and we had a guy called um, Australian guy called Dale Buggins. So Evil didn't wouldn't take do any of the scripts. Instead, he said, "You heard of Batman? You heard of Superman? Well, this is Evil can Evil, and I'm coming to Australia." I said. Australians aren't going to fall for that bullshit, Evil. I said, who are you talking to? You know, I said, this is what... Anyway, I got one of my scripts out, only, and I gave the game away, came home. Now, whilst I was there also, I don't know how I got out of the jewellery store and bought a watch, but I'd paid him 20 grand. No, I'd paid him 10 grand, and he owed 20 grand or whatever the other deal was. I bought a watch somehow down in Las Vegas. I must have been there for quite a while because I had to get permission from the electrician's union, from the, whoever turns on the fountains, the general manager of this, the general, you, you're backhandering people left and right down there, you know. So and I forget how much I spent there getting the fountains turned on at a certain time that's not usually turned on and blah, blah, blah. So it cost quite a bit because we had to film him in front of the fountains. <laughs> so um, now we open up, uh, he comes out to Australia. Um, remember we had dinner at the seafood, what's that restaurant around Double Bay, lunch or whatever it is, Catalina's. Yeah. And um, he broke my watch because it was the same one that he'd bought at, at, Gold, at uh, Las Vegas. And they told him there was only one in the world. I said, that's what they told me. And he said, well, now there is. Oh, oh what a Bloody champagne bottle with splash watch. That was all in his game, fun. He laughed like mad then, right? So we come to uh, Wollongong and um, it's the evil's turn. Now, we'd also brought out a bloody, I don't know how big, trailer with all these stars and stripes and all the paraphernalia of evil can evil and so on which we parked in the middle of the ground. So I go to his dressing room within there and uh, I said, righto, Evil, you're ready to go on. And he said, he said, I'm not going on. He said, this show's too dangerous. I said, what do you mean? He said, that guy, which was Dale Buggins, who was absolutely sensational, rode, rode wire with his bike like about 20 metres above ground. You know, boy from Newcastle was fantastic. He said, you've got people like that, I'm not going on. I said, well, you are going on. And I said, you're, you're on in a few minutes. And he said to his offside, a big buffhead bloody security guy, um, he said, you must, uh, he said, well, okay, where's my drink? And the guy handed him a, it was like a carafe of wild turkey. 
and he drank it the whole lot. No, no, sorry. He poured it into a, a like I would say, not a schooner glass, a midi glass or, you know, and drank the whole lot. Then he's got, <coughs> and he's writhing around. <coughs> quick, quick. <coughs> I want the follow-up. And they quickly undo a beer. <coughs> so the beer was the follow-up. And I said, you're going out now, Evil, to perform on your bike. You've just drunk a glass of wild turkey and a beer. And he said, you don't think I jumped the Grand Canyon sober, do you? That was his answer to that. <laughs> I said, well, get out there and do your job. Right? So he goes vroom, vroom, vroom up one end, his flowing cape, all that crap. And away he goes, past the grandstand, he waves to the people, left-hand side, goes up, comes back, waves on the way back, comes back to his starting point, turns around, goes up again, waves again, comes back. And I said, he stops. I said, hey, stop. When are you going to do something? He said, would you ask Frank Sinatra what he's going to sing? <laughs> and I said, no, I wouldn't. He said, well, don't ask Evil Knievel. So up he goes again. And this time he revs up, revs up, revs up. And he's going to do a wheelie, you know, up on the one wheel, which uh, um, the other guy did. And, and all the... Of those um, girls from Los Angeles, they did them in mass. So he goes up to do a wheelie, the back wheel slids underneath him, the bike takes off and he falls on the ground, of course. And the crowd are like, hey, they think this is his bloody act. He's fallen off his bike. He gets on, rescues his bike, comes back and goes up to do it again. Vroom, 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 up he goes, falls off again. The bike spins off into the, into the fence and he's on the floor, ground. So then he comes back, rescues his bike and comes back, and he said, that's it. I said, what do you mean that's it? He said, I want to speak to the people. And we had a ramp that went right up to like a rust, uh, what would you call it, uh, uh, a loud hailer. He drove up on top, grabbed the loud hailer, and started talking about the victims of Australian soldiers being victims of Uncle Sam and Mother England, and turns out he's a war historian. And he went into this long funny speech about Colonel so-and-so and the president of so-and-so, how Australians get conned into war, and why would you bother? You know, America's a fighting war machine. That's our country. And England, Mother England, why do you show South Australia's better than that? Blah, blah, blah. And they started to boo. The crowd started to boo. So I go up. I said, and he's got his, his microphone. I grab it. I said, Evil, get down there and do some work. Do something. Right? He said, that's it. So that was it. I had to offer the people the rest of the show. I said, if you'd like to stay, we have um, acrobats from here, we have this, we have that, and so on. Um, Mr. Eva Knievel uh, has got a technical fault with his bicycles or whatever, I, that and whatever I mumbo-jumboed, and he took off. Oh, he said, he told the, um, also the crowd, this is a dangerous ground. And I will do, for those who want to see the great evil Knievel, I will do wheelies up the main street of Wollongong. <laughs> and it's all for free. 
not like you paid now, it's all for free. Like he was a So was that the end of his tour or did he no, have other gigs? The to next play? one was oh. um the idea was he we did we toured the regionals and came back for the Royal Easter show. That was the big next one I think was Griffith. I think it was Griffith. And when I I got go down to Griffith and I go to our box office, our office, I'm talking to um talking to Wayne Stevens and uh, I said has Evil done anything he said yeah he's been around this track and uh, he said you know he complained about Wollongong he said but this track Wayne said to me the New South the British champion broke the world record or something and just two weeks back and I said okay so as I'm talking to him we hear funny rumble out the back we look and there's all evil stuff leaving town all these, all these trucks and so on, he's gone. And so we've left, that's it. So I catch up with him at the uh, hotel, Boulevard Hotel, right? And I said, uh, so that's it. He said, oh, he said, that, that ground was too, he said, if the grounds aren't safe enough, he said, I'm not going. I said, no, that ground, that oval, that place, was a place where the Royal Record was just been by some British guy. And I said, Evil, you're a failure. I'm going to lock up all your gear. And I said, if you don't leave town, I said, oh, we're going to have to throw you out of town. And I said, and once you've been thrown out, you won't be able to go anywhere in the world. I tried to lock up his gear which was not suitable for Australian roads, I found out anyway, um, and discovered that uh, it was already under uh, lien by the uh, IRA, American Tax Department. IRS. Eh? IRS. IRS, I mean, not IRA. <laughs> that'd, <have> been, <laughs> that'd have fixed it. <laughs> I should have called them. <laughs> Oh, look, I'm part Irish. I've <laughs> <laughs> got connections. Yeah, I've got connections. Anyway, so uh, so that was it, and we lost. I remember giving Edgley, and I, something else I regret, without getting proper details, because I don't know how I became 50%, except my procurement. Of, but I remember parking out $450,000 in those days. That's probably worth a million now, right? for my share of the losses. But uh, that that was the Evil Knievel uh, episode, of which I sort of barely had anything to do with except meeting that uh, evil character, Evil Knievel. <laughs> what about your triumphs, Kevin? Because, you know, people like the Three Tenors and Barbara Streisand yeah. and uh, the Bee Gees one night only. Yeah. Um, amazing successes. Yeah. Well, the Three Tenors... Well, there's always a story, and as they say, after a while you realise, you come to the realisation that you've got to put aside a, a, a contingency in the event of legal activities after the event. So, um, the three tenors, um, TB Reuters put the three tenors together. Australian guy, he put them together in Las Vegas. Matthias Hoffman bought the world rights. Matthias Hoffman phoned me and said, I've got the three tenors, but they'll only come out for one show. 
you can choose where you want to do it. Well, the, and the the price was um, fourteen metre. Um, I had to decide for Sydney or Melbourne, and Sydney did not have the capacity. Melbourne Cricket Ground had capacity of seventy thousand. I know it's a hundred thousand, but seventy thousand by the time you build your stage and your backstage and your lighting towers and sound towers and your aisles and so on, you know. So um, I also was a part shareholder in the Sydney Kings basketball and found a director with Michael Brisky. I'm on my way to a basketball match after having signed with Matthias Hoffman for the three tenors and I get a call from a guy who's still in existence and I don't mind saying because it it's true, James Erskine. He's in the news now like last night and the night before, over uh, the, the the Australian cricket team sandpapering. Yep. Warner. He manages Warner. Right. He was at the time a manager of the international management group called IMG. Now I'm on my way to Sydney Entertainment Centre to see the Kings play, playing and I get a call from him and he said, oh, would you mind just calling in? Well, I was always early because I used to go and see the boys and stuff. And having a drink, I would like to talk to you. Now, I knew that IMG was promoters of um, some classical events. And I used to also do the Bolshoi Ballet from Russia. And I thought, well, they may be able to co-handle it through Singapore, etc., through Asian countries. That's the only reason I went to see him. And when I got there, he was with another guy whom I'd forgotten. And he said, look, we're here to tell you we own the three tenors. I said, no, you don't. I own the three tenors. I've got a contract. And he said, well, we own Carreras. I said, what do you mean you own Carreras? He said, we manage Carreras. I said, so? And he said, well, we can through careers we control the three tenants because we may not allow him to perform. I said, well, you'd better see Matthias Hoffman because he's got a contract for the three tenors. I don't know what the intricacies are, but my deal is with the three tenors. Whatever you do with, with Carreras is your, not, not to do with me. So they drove me nuts. Well. Can we handle the merchandise? And I said, no, I do all my own merchandising. I don't need a merchandising company. Well, can we handle the marketing? No, I said, I do all my own marketing and I'm taking the risk and I'm doing the marketing, my own marketing, my own. And that was that. Now, they sent a letter to, or an email, it would be a letter, I expect, to my secretary, who answered something about Mr. Jacobson, whatever, whatever, because they waved this at the following court case. Uh, I said, I, I did uh, one of them bugging me badly, you know, pressure, pressure, pressure. Look, if you want to be involved, put up your money. I said, it's going to cost about 17 million to put on. Put your money up, and I'll give you a third shareholding. Put up a third, which never happened. So um, um, we do the show. 
Now, I had enough troubles with the show because uh, after the show, I had, uh, according to my, um, my uh, agreement, which I signed with Matthias Hoffman, each member of the three tenors had to have exactly the same dressing room, exactly the same hotel suite, had to be set out the same, a white grand piano in each room, I blah, 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 right? Um, <coughs> the hotel at the time in Melbourne, the um, Hyatt, only had two big suites. So I had to have them renovate and make a third suite. Uh, I had to take um, window frames out of the side of the building and put a crane on the roof and bring up grand, two grand pianos and put in their rooms. Uh, because Pavarotti wanted the grand piano. Um, Pavarotti also wanted a, a um, Italian kitchen, so whatever that is, so I had to arrange have an Italian kitchen. Fortunately, the other two said, oh, no, we don't worry about the Italian kitchen. So we had that. Now, so we do the show. Backstage, uh, Matthias Hoffman said he wants more money. And uh, <laughs> Bruce Clatman often remarks, wow, you've got a funny way of negotiating. <laughs> he, he called over his security because I said, I'm not paying you any more money. And he called over, they come with security, you know, buffets from Italy or wherever they come from. It's a bit much at the 11th hour to be asking uh, oh, for yeah. more money. Oh, yeah. that's happens. Yeah. yeah. So I... Put my elbow under his, my forearm under his chin. <laughs> I was a hundred kilos, and yeah. I could fight. <laughs> and I said, "We've done a deal, right?" I said, "Understand, that we've done a deal. We can't afford it. I'm taking on this risk. We can't afford any more than you've paid. So don't bring that on me, last minute." To this day, I've got a friend called Bruce Glattman, who's still alive in Los Angeles, and he's a what we call um, the international agent. He knows everything about everything that's going in our show business and everything that everyone knows about. And he, in, he earns his money introducing and gets percentages of the result of the introduction. Typical LA hustler, hustler right? <laughs> High class hustler, as I call him. He said, you've got a funny way of, uh, of negotiating. <laughs> so the gross takings for, you know, the largest uh, single concert in Australian history, 15 million. It's more than that. More than that, but 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 still behind the scenes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's a lot yeah. of bloody. No, the gross takings was uh, uh, 17.9 million. Oh. 17.9. Yeah. The gross takings for Barbara was 24 million. Now th that was extraordinary. I went to that concert. It was a magnificent concert, but. It was Sydney, and it rained. Yeah, she was out in a Nakubra. Yeah, <laughs> uh, th that was the first concert really uh, in Australia for her. But also, she really did concerts, didn't she? It was the first outdoor concert she'd ever done. Right, she'd never been out of the United States. So, how did you secure her? Um, Bruce Latman, this guy that I told you about, uh, mentioned earlier. This is the um, yes. the hustler in in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marty Ehrlichman 
the manager of Barbara Streisand, famous. Marty Ellickman comes out here. He looks around at all the other promoters and decides, Kevin, like I will grant you the right to pay us millions of dollars. Um, you can do Barbara Streisand. I meet, um, I take over my accountant, his name is John Chow, who considered um, Jesus would help him through the night days or nights or whatever. He would read his Bible every day and be totally distraught at the goings on of some people not behaving, not 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 um, like not um, doing the right thing. He was a very straight shooter. So I take John with me to Los Angeles. I said, you could answer all the financials because he was experienced. He came back to my hotel. I didn't go to that meeting. Upset, said, I'm going home. I can't handle this. Plane leaves at 10 past 10 at night, Los Angeles, and I know it well. And um, disappeared, came back. So I go to line up with Marty Ehrlichman and about six others. First guy, I said, okay, and they said, this guy said, well, where's your uh, office people? What, where's your production? I said, I'll do that. And I'm doing taxation, I said, I'll do that. And I'm doing, I said, I'll do that. So the accountant said, well, I want to know who does the tax return? I said, well, I'll do it for you if you like. And then Marty Ellery said, what? You can't do our tax return? I said, no, well, I'll give you to a tax company, independent. <laughs> it's so, you know, like all promoters and thieves, so to speak, in their eyes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so we overcome that. Production guy said, um, now, how do you know about production? I said, well, what do you want to know? And they said, have you heard of Clare Brothers? I said, yeah, the Clare Brothers system. We've got that in Australia. Oh, have you? I said, yes. Have you heard of the S4 system? And they said, no, no, no such. I said, yes, S4 system. Now, I had just been invited by Cameron McIntosh to go to um, um, Copenhagen to see the stage version of uh, Les Mis. And I just... When I got there, I saw these little bloody boxes. I said, Cameron, you theatrical guys, you'll never learn. I said, you've got to pick up stuff from rock and roll. I said, this won't cover a ground, a football ground. And he said, well, I'm told. He said, this is a new system uh, with a German and, and uh, Italian and something, scientist or whatever, in directional throw. Oh, okay, so I go straight up at the beginning of the show up in the grandstand and I get this beautiful clear sound. Oh, wow. I rang um, Eric Robinson in Sydney. I said, have you heard of the S4 system? He said, oh, I saw where somebody's working on it, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, capture it, pick it up, quick, smart. I said, it's fantastic, Eric. I said, save trucking time, save costs. I said, it's directional speakers, not as big as the others, and blah, blah, whatever it is, directional sound. That's how we got it. So I said to this guy now, Los Angeles at the meeting, the S4 system. I said, well, you better check it out. Uh, so I give him a lecture on the S4 system, right? And I said, it's much better than the Clare Brothers system. And I said, it'll save you costs too, because you'll be paying for your own production. And Marty Ellick would said, we're paying for our own production? <laughs> I said, yes. I said, unless you 
actually can tell me the cost I'm going to be up for or the specs, because I had no specs from them. Right. I knew that would give it to me, of course. So we dealt with him, and then some other guy piped up. We dealt with him. And then I made the mistake of telling Marty that I didn't think his contract was an outdoor show contract. He went berserk because I detected that it was a contract that they'd used for the MGM Grand in Las Vegas and quite different to an outdoor. I said to Marty, but don't worry, Marty, I'll draw up your outdoor contract. And he goes, what? <laughs> Promoter drawing up my contract? We're silly, you the show, you pay it. <laughs> I went berserk. I used to take delight, really. I had this inner feeling of, you know... This <laughs> Australian stirrer. Yeah, 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 Australian <laughs> stirrer. And we knew what we were talking about. You know, we had to grow into it. I mean, yeah. From the days when I went to the publisher and said, would you please publish this song? It's number one record. <laughs> anyway, so um, there's a story there too, but it might be a bit long. Um, Marty Ehrlichman comes out and I had to hire the Sydney Cricket Ground the Lang Park and the Melbourne um, um, Cricket Ground uh, with a full sound system stacked on the back of a truck playing Barbara's music as we went around for them to decide which is the best spot for the stage. Now I kept saying, Marty, the best spot is the stage is when you just come straight in, you bring the trucks in, you load them on the back of the stage. We can't go bringing trucks all around, you know. Oh, we know what we're doing. So we meet the general manager, whom I've forgotten, of the uh, park, the football stadium, who emphasised, oh, Mr Jacobson, you, this is great. It would be great to have Barbara here. And, and now you're in before the football season, so um, we won't be able to, we won't, they'll, they'll have to work around us. Because right? you've got to get four days. I mean, to bump in, to bump out and your shows. And the Marty's happy. We've been done the same thing, Sydney Cricket Ground, playing the music round and round and round until we find out, oh, this is the best sound here, this is where the stage should be. And I got a, a, a fax, I suppose, I don't know, fax from, from the Brisbane general manager saying, dear Mr Jacobson, NRL has overruled, blah, 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 please select another date for Barbara Streisand. Now I had my posters, I had all my um, publicity and marketing and design and everything for the Brisbane show. And you can't just say, and the trucks booked and so on. <laughs> and the tickets been sold? Yeah, no, the tickets no. hadn't been sold. Right. No, but the, the preparation. You're ready to go. And, yeah. Yeah. and I told Marty, and Marty thinks I'm a number one fella because I've, I've hooked into these great ovals. It's like booking bloody... Not Madison Square Garden. What's the big outdoor? Well, they had the baseball and Superdomes and so on. So he, for me to rock up with him and see the general manager to them, it's a big deal, you know. So I, I had to phone Marty and say, Marty, I've been doing the mathematics again here. I said, you know, the cost of trucking. And I said, Marty, I've decided that it's best we do two shows in Melbourne and we'll reduce the cost of trucking from Sydney to Brisbane and, and so on. And, um, oh, well, I'll, we'll be guided by you, obviously. So, out comes 
the advance team before the show, headed by a leading so-called security guy from London, guy about six foot five, six or whatever, um, with a bellowing uh, voice, and um, telling me we're going to set up uh, in the front of the uh, at Driver Avenue on the, uh, the cricket ground, um, we'll have set up all the security gates for the bag search. Now in those days, we didn't have bag searches. I know we do now to rock shows and so on and drugs and all that, but and also in those days, women, uh, ladies, didn't take too kindly to someone putting their hand in and searching for a gun in their bloody handbag. And I said, we don't, why do we need all this? And he said, well, Barbara's Jewish, you know. And I said, yes. He said, well, you know, she's afraid of being shot. She'd never been outstage, outdoor. And I said, well, who's going to shoot her? He said, well, she'd be shot in America. I said, this is not America, this is Australia, mate. We're not running around shooting people like you idiots over there. You know, she'll be safe. And uh, we'll have our own security people and everyone will be, anyway, no, it wouldn't happen. So on the night, we got all these bloody sentry boxes set up or whatever you call them, with security and a guy stopping them and another guy going through the handbags. And of course, people complaining left and right and women screaming, no one looked in my handbag and, and so on, which is alien to these. And the audience is building up, building up, building up, building up. The overture started. Down the audience, just down went the bloody sentry boxes. Down went the, I mean the, the you know the security guys, the travelers, off just bang, and everyone ran for door, door D, which I don't know it was it was open or whatever, and they just ran in to door D. Now we did the show. I don't know if I forget whether that was the rainy night or not. We did have nights in the bay as pending weather conditions. That's where, because she's a Democrat, and she said, after the show, we got John Howard there with his um, country hat on. What's that big broad rim hat he wears? A Cobra. I mean, we had a big VIP dinner and all that stuff. She said, she said, is there any VIPs I could meet? I said, well, we have the Prime Minister here. I said, like the president. So she said, oh, I'd like to meet him. So I grabbed hold of John Howard and Janet and marched up to the dressing room. Now part of the, I've got to say, her dressing room, she brought out. Because, I mean, playing this at a football stadium, um, cricket stadium, firstly, you've got to get rid of the liniment smell and the rubber-dub-dubs and whatever, whatever. <coughs> She brought out a, her um, French oak furniture, chandeliers, piano, yeah. big piano, uh, carpet, big carpet, and it was like a luxury Same. little unit backstage, under the, in the foot, under the grandstand. So I marched John Howard up to her. John Howard grabs her by the hand with two hands. Those in the business would appreciate this. He said, 
Barbara, Barbara, you're a good singer. You're a good singer, Barbara. Spot on. Spot on. <laughs> I thought, oh, Jesus. Anyway, while, while she still grasping her head, I said, oh, by the way, our first lady, uh, Janet Howard. Oh, hello, blah, blah, blah. Chat, chat, chat. Like the show. Spot on, Barb. You're a good singer. Um, away they go. And I marched them down. She calls me back and says, he's not a Democrat, is he? And I said, well, we don't have Democrats. I said, he's a conservative, like the Republican Party. Yes. She said, you can pick him, can't you? <laughs> and uh, and uh, I said, yeah. She said, is there anyone here I could meet from the Republicans Party? And I said, well, Democrat. there's a, a, Democrat. a Democrat. Sorry. Anyone here I could meet from the Democrats? And I said, well, we've got an ex-Prime Minister, Paul Keating's here. Now, Paul's in his dapper bloody suit and looking lovely, and he's with his mother, Minnie. And um, so I go up to Paul, and I said, Paul, Barbara Streisand would like to meet you. He said, no, nah, Kevin. He said, look, Kevin, my, my days have gone. He said, forget all that. He said, introduce him to John, John Howard. I said, I have <laughs> already. She wants to meet you. He said, no, 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 tell her. He said, no, don't worry, no. And his mother said, Paul, I'd love to meet Barbara. And he said, oh, OK, Mum. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? It's fantastic. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, they chatted on. She took him in the room and, and uh, on her sofa. Everything was hers that she brought out. And uh, when they left, she said, see, Kevin, You've got to learn there is a difference. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll see later where she's waving the Democrat flag and whatever it is. So anyway, that was that incident. Now, the second night was okay. Third night it rained. We did the show, didn't we, yeah, under the yeah, rain? Yeah. Yeah. And we got all those ponchos in. But we didn't have time to put the B on the merchandise, Barbara for the ponchos, and we have to pay 50 cents a poncho, which we didn't have a clue because I know Brian Nevinsdale played Bill, he brought them in, I was, I, I, he did a wonderful job, he got them in from China overnight, wow. right, and was able to, I think he sold them for $2 each or something. I remember sitting in one of those ponchos, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Thank goodness. We had to import under the terms, of, we didn't have to import it under the terms and conditions. According to the contract, we had to provide a stretch bulletproof limousine, which we don't have in Australia. For Barbara? Yes. Because she wanted to travel to Melbourne by car. So I got the, uh, not the Shah of Iran, what's his name? Sultan. Sultan of Brunei, I called. I said, have you got a stretch <laughs> bulletproof limousine? He said, yes. I've told him what I wanted for. And he said, can my son come to the, the show? Concert. I yeah. said, of course. I said, he can bring down the limo with him. <laughs> now, I, don't, I forget when, how much it cost us, but we provided this stretch limo which from the salt of Brunei to go to Melbourne. Now, 
I was told that the security guys travelled in that and she travelled in a Holden Statesman with her husband. What's his name, the actor? James Brolin. James Brolin. Um, now Melbourne. Can you imagine her book checking into her motel saying, you, you check in the name, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> in Albury, Wodonga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Colonial Stadium, where um, we've got um, 42 semi-trailers, 42 semi-trailers. Leave Sydney, head for Melbourne. The third semi-trailer gets bogged because there's no road, back road, being sealed to this new stadium. So we're unloading, having unloaded. The sprinklers, automatic sprinklers went off and no one knew how to turn them went on and no one knew how to turn them off so all the trucks were outside that we couldn't get on till the next day and because it was selected that the stage be there by our engineers and there's a lot of engineering and so on someone from colonial stadium decided well it's not quite right on the bearers underneath or whatever and moved the direction of the stage approximately, wouldn't it be 30 centimetres even, or whatever, in direction. Now, I'll come to that point in a minute, uh, because we now have to unload 24 semi-trailers to, to various uh, areas. Like you line your trucks up so that you can immediately do your, as you might know, stage and st lighting there to the lighting guys to do that. The boxes there for this, and all right, they're all, it's all sorted out up front as to where they go. And um, we've got the third one bogged, and we've got the sprinklers on, and uh, we can't move till the next day. And uh, we've already bought out this guy, and we discovered that the stage is now pointing in a different direction. The apron, I mean, it's so we unload all these trucks into. Wow, we put them in pickup trucks back home. Yeah, idiots when you find the wrong place to put the, <laughs> the stage. So we've got gates unloading, hundreds of bloody people, thousands maybe, I don't know, but setting up. Now, we've got a box office in accordance with, drawn up, with all the seats drawn up, in accordance with the position of the stage pointing in a certain direction, of which... We're, they're paying $2,000 a seat. No more seats. Now we've got people like that. And over there, I want my money back because we're pointing in the wrong direction, yeah. right? Yeah. And so on. So we had thousands of replacements that my girls from my own office handled, including Billy, because the new staff at the Colonial Stadium had never done anything like this before. So we had no staff. No, we all took over, we took over the box office. Anyway, we did the Barbara Streisand shows there, two shows, successful, commercially, or artistically, so to speak. And that was that. And um, we grossed quite good, we grossed 27 million. Barbara was happy, um, everyone was happy. And uh, 
We thought, it's just yeah. another day. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> so you also bought out another great icon of the music industry, Michael Jackson. Yes. How did uh, that come about? How did that come about? Um, I had a call from, uh, his name was Sal Bonafetti, and he said, um, Michael Jackson's got a new album coming out, and um, it's a first, and for members, a first uh, from four years, or it was a long time. Uh, he said, can you come over and discuss with the manager, uh, with the lawyer? I fly to um, Los Angeles, meet with Sal, uh, Branca, and he's a lawyer for the trust, John Branca, quite a famous, and um, tour manager, director, blah, 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 blah. We uh, signed up to begin in Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, out. Had the idea you might play Hawaii. So, I tried to book Sydney Cricket Ground and was told no because when I did KISS I was banned from there on in from presenting at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Um, I was taken to court when I tried to do Simon and Garfunkel there. That's another story. So with Michael uh, and he had the um, bad album. And um, I couldn't get any, I couldn't get a place to play in Sydney. So I phoned John Brown, who was the minister, minister for tourism, uh, Bob Hawke. Yeah, Hawke, the Hawke government. Yes. yes would have been yeah. uh, so, um, uh, but he was the forerunner of uh, whatever he did for. Parramatta Stadium, because I knew him because I did the It's Time for Golf with London thing. Um, so I go out there and I don't have the capacity. I mean, my mathematics had to be... By then I'd learnt. <laughs> <laughs> I had to have a certain capacity to make a certain profit, you know, and so on. Um, I'm a sellout. So you can still sell out and lose, you know. So, um, I said to John Brown, the only idea I've got, I said, is there's a hill there, I've got to remove that hill. That's where I'll set up the stage. What? <laughs> Long story short, without going into, pulled in the bulldozers and removed, pulled, dug into the hill, dug the hill out, removed it to the park up the road and set the Michael Jackson stage there. Now, the other thing about, uh, that was the three shows we did at uh, Parramatta Stadium. But the other problem I had with Michael Jackson was the radio stations would not play Michael Jackson. Was it Today FM or Triple M or whatever it was, we, I had problems with getting airtime. Air Particularly, uh, we had no airtime in Perth and Adelaide and there was no, and it was so long between albums Perth we're playing at the, whatever it is, the Wacker, uh, 30,000 seats or something or more, and um, an Adelaide Oval. So when I come to that realisation, I mean, one doesn't say, 
Oh, gee, I have Well, you might say I haven't heard Michael Jackson song for years. But like, if you hadn't heard a Michael Jackson song at all, except for this album, Bad, um, it's not conducive for anyone to say, gee, I'd like to book well ahead and put the money up to buy a ticket to see Michael Jackson. So I go back over there and I said, we can't play Perth or Adelaide. This album is not getting any um, airplay at all. They said, we'd have to pay for it. I said, you mean I've got to pay for an appearance that's not going to happen? Yes. I said, well, I've already cancelled it. You can't cancel it. I said, well, if you want to be terribly embarrassed and you want the first show of this first tour in the world for the first album of Michael Jackson after four or five years, and you want that spread around the world, I'll put it back on. Anyway, Sal Bonafetti pulled me aside, said, you're doing well, Kev. I think you're bluffing them. I said, I'm not bluffing, I'm for real. Oh, yeah, you don't have to bluff me, Kevin. I'm your friend. I said, I said I'm not bluffing. I said, look, go in and tell them I'm going to put it back on. And if they want to play, I said, if I'm going to pay for it, I might as well do the show. And I said, that'll be the same for Adelaide. I said, we might combine the publicity to the two shows. The first two shows in the worldwide tour of, of uh, Michael Jackson for the Bad Album, they, the total drawing capacity, there was 14 in, uh, I remember 14, 14 in Perth and 10 in uh, South Australia attendance. I said, well, why don't you make it 1,400? It's 1,400. I said, that'll be about it. That's a good, anyway, he said, you don't have to convince me you're doing well. He said, you're a genius, you're a genius. He said, I think you've got them worried. So, so I said, if you want to follow me, I'm going to put the show back on. No, no, you don't have to. I understand. He said, it's a great bluff. He said, you're fantastic. I said, I'm not bluffing. I'm not fantastic. I said, this is for real. So we go downstairs, I get in the car, and I go back to my hotel. It was in the Century Plaza, and because um, that's where his office was. And um, I, I, I pulled up. He pulled up outside. Well, in those days, he just... You'd park, you just get out of your park and car, you know, big time. And um, I said, come up, come up to my room. I said, comes up and I ring. There's uh, a guy that's the ex-manager of, um, he used to work for us at uh, Newcastle. Green the Machine, the Green Machine, he called himself. Anyway, I said, that show, Michael Jackson show, put it back on. And he was stunned, of course. And there was silence. I said, I know, I know, I know. I said, but we may as well have to pay for it. We may as well put it on. I said, it'll be an embarrassment. I said, I'm not going to the show. I wouldn't be so embarrassed. I said, no, you're not either. I'm talking to myself. You're not either. Oh, well, I don't blame you. I said, well, Sal, you'll be there, won't you, Sal? Here, talk to him. No, I don't want to talk. So, I mean, here we are talking about Michael Jackson. It was so bloody ridiculous. So they managed to agree, they agreed eventually, uh, that uh, it would be too embarrassing. Uh, so we cancelled Perth and Adelaide and played Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Anyway, so um, the second show with Michael Jackson was great. 
and I'm in Melbourne. I'm having breakfast with him. He was very nice, by the way. And he came down to join me in the breakfast. So I'm at the table, he comes over. I stand up and shake hands. And he says, Mr. Jacobson, I tell every promoter I see in the world, every promoter, you moved a mountain for my show. <laughs> I said, oh, thank you, Michael. You actually did. <laughs> yeah. It was hill. a hill. A hill, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to bring all the dirt back, by the way. Of course. Mm. And Brownie, that. John Brown, saying, how's that bloody grass growing? Because I used to have to go out to Parramatta and there were no sprinklers used to hold the bloody hose and hose the, the hill with the, new, the, the land back. I had all the grass planted by... Who was that guy who was in television? I had him plant all grass there. Don Burke. Don Burke. I had to employ him to go out and put the grass back on the hill. And get the hose <laughs> and, out. And the, yeah, I used to go down there. Jesus, the ground's dried. Brownie will be on my back. <laughs> get the hose out. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, uh, yeah, but that was a Michael Jackson one, I think. There's others, sure to be other bits about Michael Jackson, but uh, overall, Michael Jackson was very respectful, very nice. The best show I've ever seen. The best performer. Yeah. Variety rock and the best. Oh, the lighting there, they're fantastic. It was all he's doing, too. It must have been wonderful to return to your rock and roll roots with uh, Shout, the legend of the wild one musical about Johnny O'Keefe. That was in 2001. Uh, big hit with that all around the country and I, it, it did a return season also um, as a tent show. Yeah. yeah. Well, that came about when... Uh, when uh, how did I think of Shout? I think I, I thought there must be some uh, shows in Australia and I still think there's others um, with a similar format that I thought of. Like a, was, like a jukebox musical? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's two things I thought of whilst drinking wine in those days when I was 100 kilos at the um, restaurant. Musicians and all the politicians and all gathered around Machiavelli for some reason. And they had a competition on the most influential people in Australia. And um, I was in their business and I had a big bloody photo there. It was run by Women's Weekly, which was embarrassing. I didn't know what it was going to be. I was invited by Women's Weekly to the back of Valley and I'm sitting there with the head of Lexus, Ian Mayer. And next thing he said, have you looked at the photos? And I said, oh, I didn't even know. They said, I went, looked up. I said, oh, Jesus, I'm not going to sit here next to my own photo. You've got to, they said. And um, I, said, I said, no, no, no. I said, this is, I'm embarrassed sitting here like this. They said, it's all part of the awards. Anyway, I'm, we're all left there and I'm drinking uh, wine. And I thought of two things. One was, we started reciting The Man from Snowy Rivers for some reason. There was movement at the station for the word that passed around. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, what, what great lyrics. I said, what a great story. I, think, I said, to think that a poem, like a song, you can get a story in minutes. I said, you know, I'm talking, here I am, red wineish. I said, to think that you get a song that plays for three minutes, like Marty Robbins writes a song, and you get the whole picture. You can see it all. 
Oh, Ben's from Surrey River. So I ring, and I ring John David Atkins. I said, hey, David, I've got a great idea. I said, an arena version of the man from Snowy River. And he said, have you been drinking? And I said, yes. Why, don't you think? He said, I think it's a great idea, but he said, I think you slur your words a bit. <laughs> Anyways, we did Man from Surrey River, which I think is one of our, if there are, we have any achievements, great achievements, which is not recognised. I mean, uh, that was sensational. Anyway, the and same a, time... An arena spectacular. Yes. Yeah. And at the same time, um, I said, uh, we're, t we're mulling over all this stuff when we talk about Australiana. And I said, and you know, O'Keefe, I said, I said, I used to tour O'Keefe in the last days. And I said, he ended up sitting opposite my desk in a bloody daze, just staring at me. And uh, I said, but when I think, thought, used to think of all the you know, at the, at the time, and the pioneering that went on, I said, even though he was a bloody muckraker and he did all sorts of bad things in a way, which one would call, un, well, un, not good manners and so on, or raving on, whatever it was. So there'd be a good story there. And uh, and someone said, well, there, there is a book on him out on, uh, that somebody's written. And I said, well, I'll have a look at the book. I had a look at the book. And I thought, yes, we could do a stage play. But it happened whilst drinking fine wine. Um, the two shows, the uh, shout, the thought, the idea. And um, I rang uh, David Williams, David Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell. And I said, listen, I've got a good idea, I think. Um, a show called, we'll call it Shout. Because he wasn't, he didn't know much about Johnny O'Keefe, and he said, oh, you know, mate, for shout, and I said, yeah. He said that, then he came back and he said, that was a cover version. I said, I know all Johnny O'Keefe's was cover version. I said, um, uh, it was the Eiley Brothers, was the hit in America. Black music wasn't played here. Ideal pickup, right? I'm counting on you, black country, a uh, black uh, um, chorus. Johnny picked it up, good ear. But he had a guy called Art Thurston, who was a uh, Qantas steward. And uh, he spent a lot of time in Sydney, Los Angeles, Sydney, Los Angeles. So he bringing the music back, would he? He'd bring all the records back. So we did, so David, I said, there's a book. He said, oh, I don't know a lot about him. I said, there's a book you can follow. And what you don't know, let me know, because we can fill in a lot of stuff on him because we did we did end up with a reasonably close association where he used to just wander into the office because Johnny was bipolar and uh, um, we learned to understand it I mean uh, even though I threatened to show him throw him across the room at one time into Toowoomba but uh, uh, I learned that uh, I, sh I, I regret that because uh, he used to go off the air I had a uh, my first theatrical show, so to speak, was uh, it was a pair of I, but little Patty, the ugly duckling with little Patty, and um, uh, O'Keefe was uh, uh, in the restoration of what do you ever call it Re rehabilitation. And I was speaking with his father, and I said, look, we bring O'Keefe Johnny out when he comes out. 
I'll put him in a show. And I said, I've got a, in mind, call the Ugly Duckling, and there's a Mr. Storyteller. I said he could play the game as a Mr. play the role as a Mr. Storyteller. Oh, that's wonderful, Kevin. Thank you. So out comes John. We do our rehearsal, and uh, opening night, down comes little Paddy, Ugly Duckling comes from the from above, flutter, flutter, wings, wings, wings. Good morning, Mr. Storyteller. Nothing happens. Good morning, Mr. Storyteller. Nothing happens. Good morning, Mr. Storyteller. If you're talking to me, my name's John O'Keefe. Johnny O'Keefe. You'll address me as Johnny O'Keefe. I mean, now, the audience burst into applause. They thought this was a comedy show. <laughs> I'll be part of the kick. But um, um, then Johnny, um, that was one instant, and she kept saying, good morning, Mr. Story, so I'm waiting for the next line, as you would appreciate, right? Which never happened. And um, and then we got John singing, um, the, uh, do, a dear, a female, dear, da, 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 da. <coughs> and, I wasn't. I was not on piano. I was promoting the show, and um, producing. I don't know where we got the script from. I forget. And the piano playing do 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 on the piano, right in the pit. We all boys piano playing. Bruce Kerr, not a bad piano player. Do do and John's going do 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 bang 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 do do do, and he couldn't get it right. And Keith, my bass player, my brother, who's a bit out, a bit uncontrollable in a certain area, got up and he said, Do, do. <laughs> and O'Keefe said, Ladies and gentlemen, in the pit, these are the Joy Boys, Cold Joy's Joy Boys, and they can't play. <laughs> and, and Keith jumps up and says, and he can't sing. This is in our show. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first production. <laughs> what uh, re, um, Johnny's reaction to that is prior to his going on, because it was Panama, uh, the, the, uh, the clowns had been on and there was um, dough and flour everywhere, you know, they, right? And the broom over in the corner of the stage, he goes over and gets the bread and sweeps the bloody fl this flower all over the joy boys. In the pit. Hey, <laughs> eh? in, in the, the pit. pit. <laughs> so Keith, my brother, decides he's going to jump up on stage and job him. And <laughs> so Keith runs out, drops his bass, runs up on stage, and Johnny O'Keefe runs off stage and Keith chases him. And O'Keefe runs, this is all part of our show. <laughs> now, I still know to this day whether the audience thought, this is a great comedy. This is, if I can only put it together. I have to come back and see this tomorrow night. So, but how great that later you can celebrate him in that uh, that wonderful musical yeah. shout. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, so when that shout came along and I thought of it and we got it together and, and Richard Werrett. Now, you know of Richard Werrett. Yes, great director, yeah. So Richard dying of AIDS. And I thought, I had so much respect for him as a director. Creative, yeah. And he mostly directed opera, didn't he? I did a lot of, no, Sydney Theatre Company. Oh, Sydney uh, Theatre Company. Yeah, a lot of plays. So I asked him to be the director. He said, oh, Kevin, I'd love to, but I don't know if I'm up to it. And I thought, oh, yeah, sure you are, Richard. I said, I'll be beside you. 
big deal. I said, I'll be beside you. <laughs> um, he said, oh, what about the auditions? He said, I know nothing about rock and roll. I said, that's what I said, that's okay, I'll be beside you. And uh, so we're auditioning. I'm sitting there with Richard and um, one, the first day of, of uh, the bloody um, piano player, something happened to him, burnt his hands or something. So here am I playing piano for the auditions, right? And Richard says, do you always play piano for the auditions? I said, no, I've never played <laughs> piano for the auditions. So I said, I'll flat out leave you the music. I've been playing rock and roll. I said, I've lost it. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I said, I've got to fill in with chords. I can't. Anyway, so then uh, Richard thought that was pretty quaint and outside of his normal uh, theatrical stuff, right? And I remember this poor guy came in with a double-breasted grey suit and uh, and Richard Richard taught me a lot in theatre, and so did David Ackett. But Richard would not be American pickup style that Australians picked up, like four bars next, next, you know. And um, uh, Richard uh, used to say, um, "What's your name?" Blah blah blah. At the auditions. And um, where did he come from? So, oh, you've grown up there? Yes. Uh, when did you start singing? Blah, blah, blah. And what are you going to do for us? So and so. And why did you pick that song? Do you like it? And it was, you know, so on. And he t treat them with respect. Put them at ease. The artists. So they could perform at their best. Yes. Yeah. Um, this guy came in, poor bugger, and he's got his hand behind his back. And Richard went through the thing with him. What are you going to sing? And he said, only the lonely. And Richard said to me, is that a rock and roll song? I said, well, it's a pop song, yes. You know, the Roy Orbison. Mm -hmm. Richard's other thing, which I thought was brilliant, though I didn't know, because I'm a raw audience theatre, really. And he said, can you recite this song. the lyrics this song? As if you're on I conversation. And you're talking to me. And this guy says, yes, I can. He said, okay, go ahead. He says, dum, 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 dum de doo ah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And Steve, and Richard said to me, this could possibly be the worst night, day of my life. <laughs> You get that? Yeah. <laughs> only the, the lonely. The lyrics. And he says, only the lonely would make me feel the way I do tonight or something. And Richard said, oh, okay, okay, would you sing it? <laughs> he also so, had to put a chair in the room and, and the person who was auditioning had to address the It's a great, good thing because singers used to come for audition. They could sing a song, but you ask them to recite the lyrics. No idea. They couldn't. Yeah. I mean, they could recite parts thereof, but you know, as if they're reciting to somebody, they couldn't. Mm. A lot. Mm. I mean, a fair, a fair percentage. So, this guy's got his hand behind his back now. Same fella. He goes, dum 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 dum. He do uh, whoa 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 whoa. Da, da, da. Only the lonely makes the way I feel tonight. Only the lonely goes. There goes my baby. Boom, boom, he goes like this, right? Uh, Richard's already said to me, this could 
possibly be the worst day of my life after he's gone well, well, reciting it. Only the lonely down to a flower. Doesn't it? No, the way I feel. Only the lonely. And he goes through it all. There goes my baby. Dum, dum, dum. There goes my heart. Dum, dum. And in the last phase, he, and he says, and only, only the lonely, and throws the flower underneath the table at his feet, right? At Richard's feet, throws the carnation, the long stemmed carnation. And Richard said, I'm sure it is the worst day. I'm sure it is the worst day of my life. <laughs> but anyway, he taught me quite a lot. Yeah. That was the biggest gracing, it is, biggest gracing a show, Australian produced or whatever it is, a uh, product. Because, you know, Frosty and all those people, they've never produced any raw Australian shows. The only Australian shows that get produced, and I've always threatened to get stuck into them, but I never have, is the early little theatre shows, like uh, uh, small theatres, Australian plays. And uh, I, I remember I wanted to do, um, what's the Aboriginal show? Um, brand, brand, brand New Day. A brand new day. Yeah, good fun. Uh, I, I thought I could turn that into a really nice show, a good show, and even take it out overseas. Yeah. I've never got around to it, but yeah. um, to, to have done, yeah, shout, I should be proud of that, I suppose, because it's a thought from the start, even though it's prompted by alcohol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you should, you should go home and crack open I, a I bottle should of go, wine tonight. Go home and get stuck into it and come up with something, <laughs> something else. <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much for sharing uh, some of the days of, of your momentous career. Okay, uh, it's you. been wonderful to have the conversation. And thank you, Billy, for, um, prompting. for uh, prompting. Which is <laughs> Actually, I think Billy knows more about it than I do, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. Peter. It was a privilege indeed to meet Kevin Jacobson and his wife, Billy, during the recording of this conversation. A fascinating story of a life presenting a vast array of entertainments over several decades. And somehow, at the age of 85, I don't feel that Kevin has quite yet stopped. Thank you, Kevin, for your insight and for the decades of great entertainment. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.